Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Gail Darling from Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, who delivered the Gibbon Lecture at Clinical Congress 2022. In her lecture, Dr. Darling offered her experiences with a new process for morbidity and mortality conferences that provides a safe environment to discuss adverse events and focus on system issues rather than pointing fingers at individuals. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Thank you, Dr. Sabic, for those very kind introduction. I especially want to thank the college for the privilege of giving the John Gibbon lecture this year. I'm deeply honored, and when I look at the, my predecessors, they represent the giants of cardiothoracic surgery, and I am humbled to be counted amongst them, and only the second woman to do so. I've actually retitled my talk a little bit to be Professionalism in Surgery, Resilience, Burnout, and the Role of M&M Conference. And for those of you who heard the, were here for the opening ceremony, you'll recognize the importance of professionalism. And I hope I can remind us a, a bit more about what we are as professionals. Dr. Gibbon was a son of a surgeon. He did his undergraduate at Princeton and his medical degree at Jefferson Medical College, followed by internship at Pennsylvania Hospital. He then did a research fellowship at Harvard Medical School under Dr. Edward Churchill, where he developed the heart-lung machine, for which he is widely renowned. He performed the first successful open-heart procedure using total cardiopulmonary bypass on May 6, 1953, on a young woman with an ASD. He was president of the American Surgical Association, the American Association for Thoracic Surgery, and the Society of Vascular Surgery. He was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 1972 and was chairman of the Annals of Surgery from 47 to 57. He received the Gardner Foundation International Award in 1960, the Lasker Prize in 68, and the Dixon Prize in 1973. He had an illustrious career, and indeed I'm humbled to be giving his lecture, in his, this named lecture. This is the outline for my talk. I guess as a cardiothoracic surgeon or as a thoracic surgeon, I was probably expected to talk about esophagectomy, which is something I've really dedicated my career to improving outcomes of esophagectomy. But I, I got reflecting on a few other topics during COVID, and we heard in the opening ceremonies this morning a lot about COVID. And, and so that was really the genesis of the t this talk. So what is the definition of profession? Profession means to declare aloud, to publicly promise, commit, and dedicate oneself to an ideal. To be a professional is a lifelong dedication to the well-being of others. Inherent in professionalism is commitment to excellence. And again, we heard about that earlier this morning. Profession is much more than a job. It is an identity. It is who we are. We are surgeons. So I want to talk about morbidity and mortality conference. And the, 
important role of morbidity and mortality conference uh, as a part of an in as integral component of our clinical government governance, our self-governance, our commitment to excellence. And certainly people will recognize the educational role of M&M conference to learn from our mistakes. And inherent in that is the goal of M&M conference is really to improve patient safety, reduce adverse events, reduce preventable deaths, and improve patient care. Over the years, however, M&M conference has morphed into something somewhat different. And it is variously called quality improvement conference or some variation thereon. And this philosophy comes from the airline industry where it was recognized that accidents happen, but exceeding the number of accidents were near misses. And why didn't we know about those? And it was because people were afraid to speak up. And so the airline industry adopted the model of no finger pointing, no shame, no blame, just the facts. And they focused on system issues, recognizing that to err is human. And an example Malcolm Gladwell gave in one of his books was an airplane crash uh, on a hill. And there was a hill on the, that if you took a low approach to landing, you would crash into the hill. But everybody apparently knew about the hill, except for the, the, the crew of that airline that crashed. Why wasn't it on a map? Why wasn't it on the flight plan? And that was a, that's a very good example of a system issue. So as we transition from our old M&M, we, various groups developed um, models to transition to this new sort of quality improvement um, approach. And inherent in that was to remove the finger pointing and the shaming and blaming and the criticizing and, and people being afraid to speak up. The Ottawa M&M model began with an appropriate case selection. They then conducted a structured case analysis. There was interprofessional and multidisciplinary involvement, so not just surgeons in the room. There was a facilitator who was usually a faculty member. And at the end of the presentation, there was a bottom line. And then they disseminated all these various bottom lines or learnings uh, across their institution via their quality committee. The Michigan Collaborative, Cardiothoracic Collaborative, developed a different approach, and they talked about phase of care mortality analysis. And this was begun in 2006. And by 2007, all mortalities in this group were analyzed according to this phase of care model. And they looked at the preoperative phase, intraoperative phase, ICU, floor, and discharge, and, and to what phase of care could mortality be attributed. And of course, we always think that, well, it must be related to the surgeon and what happened in the operating room. But in fact, more than a third of mortalities were attributable to the preoperative phase, and a quarter to the ICU phase, and only a fifth were attributable to the intraoperative procedure. In our institution, we have adopted something called Quality Improvement Patient Safety Rounds, or QUIPs. The cardiothoracic resident prepares the data sheet and presents the case review. In this model, we only review mortalities, failure to rescue, and near misses. One of the consultants acts as the moderator, and key stakeholders are included in the rounds, including not only the surgeons, but anesthesia, critical care, nursing, perfusion, and often cardiology. The, case, the structure is such that 
the, there's a concise case review taking about 10 minutes. There's then a phase of care analysis, again, divided into preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative phases. And I've listed there the, the, the variety of things that are considered. But I would point out that in each phase, there is a, a, a phase called communication. And what we have learned is that communication failures or misinterpretations are a key component of many adverse events. We also identify what is the inflection point. Where do the patient's course fall off, fall off their expected trajectory? And as you might expect, this most often occurs prior to the actual event. There's then an interdisciplinary discussion and action items are identified. This is just an example of the QUIPS data sheet. The inflection point is, is completed by the moderator at the rounds, and each event is coded. And this is an example of the thoracic codes. So each thing that occurs, whether in the preoperative phase, the intraoperative, or postoperative phase, is assigned a code. The demographics and the event factors and inflection point are entered into our QUIPS database. And this really is a powerful granular database which allows us to do a root cause analysis. It doesn't replace, but should complement other clinical and quality data collection programs. For example, the NISQIP database or the STS database. It allows us, however, to identify institution-specific QI opportunities. More than that, it facilitates uh, our residents developing critical review skills and learning accountability. The resident who presents the case is the resident who participated in the patient's operation. It also facilitates awareness by the entire team. As surgeons, we know that we're the ones that have to go and talk to the family about the adverse event. But by having everyone involved in the discussion, we allow our nursing colleagues, our perfusionist colleagues, our anesthesia colleagues to hear about the outcome and to hear and consider their role in that outcome. As I mentioned, the data collection launches quality improvement initiatives and potentially enhances performance out and outcomes. And as was mentioned earlier today, quality is the cornerstone of excellence. I neglected to mention that uh, I want to thank Joel Beer, who is one of our residents for these slides, which he presented at a recent STS webinar. When I was a resident, this book, Forgive and Remember, Managing Medical Failure by Charles Bosk, was recommended reading. I read it. I have to admit, I didn't really get it at the time. But Charles Bosk was a sociologist, and he studied surgical culture. And he spent 18 months rounding with surgical teams in a pyramidal surgical training program. And he was particularly interested in why some residents were, why some residents were fired and others were not and what kind of errors led to residents being fired. And what he identified was that residents who made errors related to their lack of experience or knowledge were forgiven, and they were allowed to continue. And residents who made other kinds of errors were not forgiven. And these included things like misrepresenting themselves, maybe telling the faculty member the morning blood work when in fact they hadn't actually reviewed it, essentially lying. And that as you can imagine, has no place in our profession. Now, Dr. Bosk, prior to his death, was interviewed by Dr. Seth Leopold, and he commented on the modern M&M conference. He said that the shift to a language of system error aligns poorly with an ethic of personal 
individual, and professional accountability. He went on further to say that it is impossible for anyone in any field to learn anything without reflecting on how their behavior contributed to some unwanted outcome. And think about that. Think about when you've had an adverse event and how you think about it and reflect upon it and try to figure out, you know, what did you do or what should you have done? Or, and your colleague can have the same adverse event and you don't think twice about it. We don't learn from other people's problems or adverse events or errors. We learn from our own. And part of learning from their own, your own errors is taking that accountability for that error, for your role in that adverse event. I particularly like this uh, graphic for looking at adverse events, this root cause analysis. And I like it because it considers not only the systems factors that we consider nowadays in our quality improvement realms, but also considers the human or cognitive factors, medical knowledge, diagnostic reasoning, therapeutic choices, and clinical assessment. And it acknowledges the role that we as human beings have in the patient's outcome. We heard about burnout this morning. Burnout in surgeons has been increasing, particularly over, over the COVID pandemic. We know that support from coworkers is independently associated with less burnout and poor working relationships are associated with more burnout. And if we reflect on the past two years of the COVID pandemic, I think we can all recognize that we have been isolated from our colleagues, that people are grumpy, they're tired, they're exhausted. The usual working relationship we are used to has been compromised by the pandemic. Also noted is that the culture of bravado and shaming are associated with more burnout. And it's really surprising that we all survived those M&Ms of old where we were kind of afraid to speak up because we didn't want to look stupid or we didn't want to be criticized. Importantly, a sense of belonging was associated with less burnout. And I vividly remember on my surgical rotation as a medical student, that feeling of being part of the team, that feeling of belonging. And I think that's really integral to our culture of surgery. Well, why is burnout important? Well, in this, in this uh, study by Shanafelt et al., they identified that major medical errors self-reported by surgeons were strongly related to the surgeon's degree of burnout and their mental quality of life. So when we're exhausted, when we're burnt out, when we have, we have lost our way, we're more likely to make errors. What else contributes to burnout? Lack of control an inability to influence our schedule or our workload, lack of resources. How many of us have had to sh close down or reduce our practice during COVID because our ICUs were overflowing with uh, patients recovering from COVID and we couldn't do the work we were trained to do? Dysfunctional workplace dynamics. Again, thinking about people being grumpy, people being tired, exhausted. They weren't willing to, to cut us any slack because they were burnt out. Also extremes of activity, and you think, well, yeah, that makes sense. If things are chaotic and you're overworked, you're gonna be burned out. But also, if you're in a monotonous job, that takes a lot of effort to focus, to maintain your, your focus during that monotonous job. Importantly, again, I'll come back to the lack of social support. Isolation at work and in your personal life. And again, this happened during COVID. We were isolated from our colleagues and I, 
I, I often wonder if I would have taken the job that I'm in now if it hadn't been for COVID. I love my work colleagues, my work family at Toronto General Hospital and Thoracic Division. I look forward to seeing them every day. And during COVID, I didn't see them. We didn't get together. We didn't talk. We had Zoom conferences. It just wasn't the same. And how many of you isolated in the basement so that you wouldn't risk infecting your family because you might have been exposed? So COVID has taken a real toll on all of us. And lastly, work-life imbalance, another buzzword. Our trainees talk about it all the time. I didn't really understand what it meant. I, I kind of assumed I wasn't going to have work-life balance. After all, I was a surgeon. I was a thoracic surgeon. You know, where's the balance in that? But now I understand a little better. It doesn't mean 50-50 time at work, time on my, at home. It really reflects the fact that if your work takes up so much of your time and effort that you don't have energy to spend with your family and friends, then you have work-life imbalance and you're more likely to be burnt out. I noticed there's another talk later today about the second victim. Wu talks about medical error, the second victim, the doctor who makes a mistake. In modern medicine, there is this expectation of perfection. There is no place for mistakes. But we know that surgery is complex, cognitively, technically, and emotionally. We all bear the weight of responsibility for our patients on our shoulders. We also know that we work in a time-pressured decision-making environment under conditions of unresolvable uncertainty. We sometimes just can't know what we're going to find in the operating room. But importantly, we lack safe spaces to discuss adverse events. Where do we talk about what ha these things that have happened to us? And this contributes to burnout. I'm just going to read this quote from this article. Virtually every practitioner knows the sickening realization of making a bad mistake. You feel singled out and exposed, seized by the instinct to see if anyone has noticed. You agonize about what to do, whether to tell anyone, what to say. Later, the event replays itself over and over and over in your mind. You question your competence. Should you continue? Should you, do you have any place being a surgeon? You know you should confess, but you dread the prospect of potential punishment and of the patient's anger. And I'd like to share with you an experience I had earlier in my career when I was still doing critical care, where I transported a patient to the ICU who was in respiratory failure. It was a young man with um, uh, a hematologic malignancy. And we hooked him up to the oxygen, and we were bagging him. And his sat kept dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. And I intubated him, and he still died. And I like, couldn't figure out what happened. And then it was identified that whoever had hooked up the, the, the ambu bag to the oxygen source had actually hooked it up to air, not to oxygen. And I was devastated. And I didn't know how was I going to tell the family that their son had died because I didn't check that that was an oxygen supply and not an air supply. I didn't even know there was an air supply. Amy Edmondson talks about the importance of psychological safety for high-functioning teams. And we heard, we heard about high-functioning teams earlier from Dr. Hoyt. Uh, surgeon, surgery, surgical teams are high-functioning teams. Now, Ed, Amy Edmondson was speaking more in the business 
perspective, but this absolutely applies to our surgical environment. So what does it mean to have psychological safety? It means that people feel safe to speak up. They, they can be honest. They're not fearful of being uh, seen as dumb or being dismissed or ignored. They don't fear retribution. And they're unafraid to come up with new ideas. And I think back to some of the M&Ms I've attended in the past where, as a resident, certainly I spent the time looking at my shoes, praying I wouldn't be called upon because I didn't want to look stupid. I didn't want to be criticized. But even as a faculty member, you know, I kept quiet. I didn't want to bring up the idea of maybe did you consider approaching it this way because I didn't want to be criticized and made to look stupid. If, people don't, if we go to a meeting and people don't speak up, we can almost always assume the leader has not created a psychologically safe environment. We talked earlier today about the role of trust in high-functioning teams. And again, going back to the business world, we know that in high-trust companies, workers have less stress, higher productivity, and less burnout. So, stress, so trust is essential to high-functioning teams. And trust occurs in the workplace when there is a culture of honesty, psychological safety, and mutual respect. Google took a look at their teams. They looked at their great teams and their not-so-great teams. And they tried to figure out what was the difference. They all seemed to have the same qualifications and so on. And they identified that their great teams were teams with a high degree of trust. And we heard Dr. Hoyt talk about trust. In high-trust teams, team members admit mistakes and weaknesses. They ask for help. They accept questions and input about their area of responsibility without becoming defensive. They give one another the benefit of the doubt before arriving at a negative conclusion. They take risks in offering and accepting feedback. And they appreciate and tap into one another's skills and expertise. They focus their time and energy on important issues, not politics. And they offer and accept apologies without hesitation. And they look forward to meetings and other opportunities to work as a group. This is a team with a high degree of trust. And this is what our surgical teams should be. I think cardiac surgery is actually the epitome of a high-functioning uh, team. Every person in this room, shown here, has a role to play in the outcome of the patient. And every person in the room has an obligation to speak up if something isn't going quite right, or if they don't quite understand about something. High-functioning surgical teams understand their own and other members' roles and responsibilities, just like in cardiac surgery. They encourage the contribution of all members and ensure that the view of new and junior members are taken into account. And you're like, wait a minute. I'm not letting the medical school interrupt my operation. But consider that the medical student in your operating room isn't really, doesn't maybe know exactly what you're doing. And I think we've probably all experienced that annoying question from the medical student while we're trying to do something really complex. But sometimes they've noticed something that we weren't paying attention to. And sometimes the act of answering that question allows us to look at it in a different way and maybe Maybe they see something that we should have seen, but we didn't.
High-functioning teams show respect for the role, the expertise, and competence and contributions of allied disciplines and healthcare providers. I know when I was a junior resident, I always went to the charge nurse to ask about things because that person knew more about what was going on in the ward than anyone else. Actually, as a staff member, I went to the charge nurse because that person knew more about what was going on in the ward than even my senior resident. High-functioning teams respect the leadership of the team. In this day and age, we try to be more egalitarian and accept everybody's important, but somebody has to captain the ship. There can only be one chef in the kitchen, and we all need to show respect for the leadership of our team. High-functioning teams have the shared goal of high-quality care for the patient, and we heard that this morning about uh, the American College of Surgeons. That's one of our principles. We show commitment to teamwork in the best interest of the patient. That's why we're all here. We're here to look after the patient. And how many of you have been in turf wars in the emergency room where this service or that service doesn't want to take care of the patient because it's not really in our, in our ballpark? But somebody has to take care of the patient, and the patient shouldn't be caught in the middle. We recognize, and high-function teams members recognize that they are important to the outcome of the patient, and they feel confident to raise their voice or intervene. So what should we do when a colleague makes a mistake or has an adverse event? And those aren't the same thing. You can have an adverse event without having had a mis made a mistake. Similarly, you can make a mistake and sometimes you get away with it, nothing happens. I think we should reflect on how we would like others to react to our, our mistakes or our adverse events. And we should make it safe for that colleague to talk about the event. We should encourage them to describe what happened and we should accept their assessment of what happened. But we shouldn't belittle it or blow it off. We should acknowledge it as a serious event and of the impact it has on our colleague. And we may make them feel a little better or less isolated by sharing an adverse event of our own. Why is this important? Well, because surgeons, by their nature, are resilient. My friend Angela Cooper says that surgeons are the most resilient people on the planet, and I think that is true. We all have the ability to pick ourselves up after a difficult situation and carry on. We have toughness, we have grit. And if you think about it, if something bad happens in the operating room, you have to fix it. And, and then you can't just stop and feel sorry for yourself. You gotta carry on and finish the operation. We have to be resilient. And I think if I, I'm gonna go through this list, you'll recognize your, your, own, your own selves in this list characteristics of resilient people. We are positive, but realistic. We seek opportunities in difficult situations, looking for the positive and not dwelling on the negative. Surgeons have a strong moral compass, a sense of right and wrong, which guides our decisions. We believe in something greater than ourselves. We are altruistic. We have concern for others and a degree of selflessness. And we are dedicated to causes we find meaningful and that give us a sense of purpose. Looking after other people gives us a sense of purpose. We accept what we cannot change and focus energy on what we can change. We have a mission, a meaning, a purpose. And commitment to a meaningful mission in life gives us courage and strength. And importantly, we have a support system and we support others. And that's what we do when we listen to our colleague tell us about an adverse event. 
So I'm going to go back to the beginning and talk a little bit about professionalism. Dr. DeRose identified the link between Aristotle's virtues and professionalism. And you'll recognize a recurring theme here, the first virtue being trust. Aristotle talked about it being between the physician and their patient, and indeed the patient must trust in us as their surgeon in order for us to do the operation that they need. But we also have to have trust amongst ourselves and amongst our team and with our colleagues. Benevolence, of course. Intellectual honesty, knowing when one does not know and having the humility to admit it and obtain assistance. So think about Google's great teams, their high-functioning teams. This is exactly what they did. Their team members said, oh, I don't know how to do that. Do you? Can you help me? And we have to do the same as surgeons. Courage to be the patient advocate. Compassion, put ourselves in our patient's shoes. And truthfulness, patient is owed the knowledge necessary for making informed choices. And all of these things add up to what's called practical wisdom, the ability to make the right choices in complex clinical situations. It's what we surgeons do every day. So how can we incorporate the psychological safety of our new M&M and the systems approach? Is that good enough? And I'll come back to things that um, Dr. Bosk said. He emphasized the importance of the performative aspect of M&M conference. Well, what does that mean? That means the narrative, the surgeon telling their story. This helps us to understand how the adverse outcome occurred and what might have prevented it. And he said that even when systems level failure occurs, people are involved. By sharing their story, by telling their narrative, surgeons display humility by acknowledging their own role in the adverse event. It also individualizes death and complications. Patients are not just a data point. They're somebody's mother, brother, sister, son. It honors the human element in the doctor-patient relationship, the trust that that patient put in you as a surgeon. Furthermore, the performative element of M&M acts to inoculate surgeons from becoming the second victims of death and complications. So I think that our M&M conference of the future certainly should have a role, an educational role, in learning from our mistakes. We should certainly continue to have a systematic analysis of events, looking at the root cause analysis. This ensures standardization across all the various events that we're talking about. It should continue to include quality improvement aspects to identify system errors and identify system, systems approaches to prevent error. And we should also include summative data, a comprehensive assessment of outcomes, including denominators. So it's a very different thing if you had two deaths in a month when you did 100 cases than if you had two deaths in a month when you did 20 cases. Without that denominator, it doesn't belittle the death, but without the denominator, we as a group do not know exactly the extent of our problem. But I also think it should include a summary of all complications, not just the, the big ones, but all the little grade one, two, and three, and we should classify them according to the Clavian-Dindo um, classification. 
And the reason I think that's important is because often those grade one, two, and three complications are kind of low-hanging fruit for improvement. And if you think about, for example, the NISQIP database and looking at urinary tract infections, we found they're incredibly common. And so what did we do about that? Nobody died from that, but what did we do? We, we stopped using Foley catheters or we reduced the duration of use of Foley catheters and our urinary tract infection rate went way down. An easy solution, a systems approach. How do we teach professionalism? We don't teach professionalism. They, trainees can't read about it in a book or go to a lecture or watch a YouTube video. They model professionalism. We model professionalism, and that's how they learn to behave as professionals. M&M Conference allows us to demonstrate accountability, humility, and honesty. It demonstrates respect for the patient, respect for all members of the team, and demonstrates the psychological safety for the team. It prevents the second victim, and it reduces burnout. I think the M&M Conference of the Future should continue to be respectful with no finger pointing. We should continue to present the facts. We can sh should consider to do a standardized analysis of the preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative factors. And we should consider, continue to consider systems approaches for prevention of adverse events. But going forward, I think we should allow the surgeon to tell their story, their narrative, to reflect on their role in the patient's outcome and their thought processes at each step. And in this way, by modeling professionalism, our trainees will learn to behave as professionals. By sharing our stories, we share our culture of accountability to our patients. We model an environment of psychological safety. We demonstrate trust in our colleagues that we can be open and honest. We demonstrate truthfulness, courage, and compassion, and we support each other. We provide that support that is so important in our surgical teams. And sharing our stories is part of our surgical culture. Thank you very much for the privilege of addressing you today, and I hope that some of these ideas will resonate with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.